Today's episode of The Press Box is brought to you by SeatGeek, our presenting sponsor and the only fan-friendly app for buying and selling sports and music tickets. Wanted to give a shout-out to SeatGeek on some major news. They've just cut a huge deal with Major League Soccer to help improve sports ticketing from the ground up. They'll be building a new ticketing system for teams that will be far more fan-friendly than the sites you've been stuck with for years. So drop your old site and experience buying and selling tickets the way it should be. To start using SeatGeek, download the free SeatGeek app or go to SeatGeek.com. Also wanted to mention the Ringer now has merch. Go to bit.ly.com slash ringer merch where you can find shirts and hoodies. A portion of the proceeds from each purchase will benefit Charity Water, a nonprofit organization that provides clean and safe drinking water to people in developing nations. Again, go to bitly.com slash ringer merch for all the latest from your pals here at the Ringer. I'm Brian Curtis, and this is the Press Box Podcast. My guest, Terry McDonald, has edited more magazines than Howard Schnellenberger has coached football teams. That's a sports joke, Terry. Here's a partial list. Ah, that's a good one. That's good. <laughs> partial. No, I, I get that. There you go. Here's a partial list. Esquire, yeah. Men's Journal, Us Weekly, and Smart, and most interesting for our purposes here today, Sports Illustrated, which he presided over from 2002 to 2012, and everything is recounted. In his new book, The Accidental Life, an editor's notes on writing and writers. Terry, thanks for doing this. Uh, it's a pleasure. I, I follow the podcast. I like it. The, um, so here's, the, here's where we have to start in 2016, unfortunately, which is going back to the question of what is a magazine? I think Because I think anybody younger than me doesn't quite know the magic. You write in this book, books were too slow, newspapers get thrown out, but people saved magazines. So remind us, what was the appeal of a magazine? Well, they were where people went and where they expected to get new ideas, uh, especially reflection on the culture in the sense that things were changing so fast, especially, you know, back in the day when I mean, there was sex, drugs, and rock and roll and all of that. But don't forget, there was the women's movement. There was a sexual revolution. There was the war. There was uh, civil rights. There was the birth of what we now understand to be media celebrity, celebrity for that matter. And you found that in magazines. Yeah, and you sort of carried these things around with you, right? And you'd read them again and again. Well, sure. Well, I, you know, people would, would wait. I would wait. Um, for the mail to come. <laughs> you know, I think, imagine, you know, you're waiting for the mail to come. Yeah, it's an incredibly antique concept now, right? Yeah, it, 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 make, it makes me tired. <laughs> Did you, you have such, an, such a wide-ranging list. What was the hardest magazine for you to get as editor? Probably Us Weekly. Mm. How the, so? I I was like a magazine editor professional and I knew, you know, about you know how to put a magazine together. But when I went to Us Weekly, I really did not know the subject matter that I was stepping into beyond my experience covering celebrity and movies and rock and roll at let's say Rolling Stone. But I was not very good on lipstick. <laughs> What'd you have so to... I had to, I, you know, you rely on people and you, you know, you work with people who know what they're doing, what the subject matter is, and, and you're okay. But, but 
times were tricky there for me sometimes. Well, we came up with stuff that I thought was funny. Or Charlie Learson came up with Fashion Police. That started at Us Weekly, and that set a kind of a tone where you didn't have to be that serious about all of it all the time. Right. And then you go to SI in 2002. And are you a yeah. are you a sports guy editing a sports magazine, or are you a magazine guy editing a sports magazine? I'll tell you the story of how I got hired. I I had been I was being recruited by Time Inc. and I thought they were talking about people because us was barking at people, and uh, they had Entertainment Weekly and of course, you know Time and Sports Illustrated, which I did not think they were talking about. And then I was having dinner with John Huey, who was who ultimately hired me, and he said kind of as a joke, but in retrospect it was obviously a probe. He said, "Can you name?" five NFL coaches. And I flippantly said, well, I, I, I played for four. And that took him aback. And then we had to talk through that. And the truth is, when I was in high school, my first coach was Dick Vermeil. Wow. And then I played for Marv Levy as a freshman at University of California at Berkeley. I was recruited there by Bill Walsh. And Mike White was the freshman coach. So that's four right there. <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, I, the, college football was my sport. That's where I did have some expertise. But to get to the point of your question, I was a magazine guy editing a, a, a sports magazine. And did you think that helped you or hurt you? I think it did both. It made me more collaborative, I think. I really depended on the people that I was working with. And the wonderful thing about Sports Illustrated, if you didn't know something, it did not take long for somebody to pop up and have exactly that answer, no matter how obscure it might have been. You know, we, they, people could tell you how many, you know, what, what Clemens' record had been when it had rained the day before. <laughs> Stuff like that. Yeah, you're surrounded by sports nerds, so you can kind of steer the ship in this kind of looking for writing and, and angles and things well, like that. Well, that, that would be a little pretentious. I mean, those guys were so good at that already. I, I felt like I was, you know, somebody airlifted me, you know, onto a you know, great aircraft carrier. <laughs> Did you, Remember 2002, a long time ago, different days. For sure. You write in the book, yeah, that SI got 36,000 physical letters to the editor every year and employed three people to handle them, which feels like something... Answered those letters, most of them. Yeah, we had... They, it, was, it was a smart thing to do. We used to brag about how many letters we got. That was the old measure of uh, reader interaction. Yeah, it was. It, well, it really, it, well, and it, it, it was. It was true. It was a. It was a. It was a legitimate measure. I think. Did you 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 subscribe to SI? Uh, you write from the time you were a kid. I was just going to say I'm one of those stories. I got a subscription from my grandfather in 1956 or something. And did you? Was there any temptation to try to create some of the classic? Andre Laguerre magazine, or was that did that just belong to a particular place and time? I looked at his covers all the time. The simplicity of them. I remember one specifically. It was Bobby Lane when he was with the Lions, looking out right at you, piercing eyes with that one face guard bar, with a kind of a smirk on his face. Mm. And I tried to create that a couple times. I think we did it once with Tom Brady. 
But of course, the mask was different, but things like that. Yeah. And you get this bucket of research on your first day or one of your first days there at SI. And it turns out all the readers say they really like short pieces and they like the NFL and college football and kind of the meat and potato stuff. And they don't think they like those big, long, strange bonus pieces that SI is famous for. But then when you run those big, long pieces, the readers like them a lot. <laughs> is, that, is that what a magazine is, Some, giving us something we didn't even know we wanted in that way? That's what I always thought. I think it was very true of SI because the, the, the magazine was nuanced as you went through it. It pushed you in various directions and it had subtext and, you know, it was all about the culture as well as sports. It was about civil rights. It, you know, the, all of that stuff was always there. And so when you, when you would follow a, 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 a stream into those subjects you could you could find a good place and people would be be very happy with the stories i don't think it would be the same at more service oriented magazines i mean if you're writing a service magazine and somebody says i want to know more about jeeps or sewing machines or whatever you should give them jeeps and sewing machines mm -hmm. but at si it was just you know far too too generalized in terms of the way the research went your star writer, or one of your star writers, is Rick Riley, who you write as the was the highest paid writer at Time Inc., uh, not just SI when he was there. Did any did you ever work with somebody who owned a magazine, like Riley kind of owned SI at that point? Oh, Riley was singular. He had, you know, such ability, and he was he was beyond ambidextrous. He could do so many things so well, and he had that great swagger. He was my, you know, I used to think of him as a, a you know, a wonderfully cocky teenager riding around in a convertible, and he would stop here, or he would stop there, or he, wherever he would stop, he could come up with a wonderful story, and week to week, he did that. Why was he so perfect for that back page of SI, do you think? There was a a cross, I think, between humor and seriousness. But what that was really based on was that Rick has his great big fat heart. So he was he would be offended by bullies, he would he loved to find underdogs, he had causes he wanted to fight for. You know, that nothing but nets thing that he did, sending mosquito netting to Africa really made a big impact and I you know we were everyone was very proud of that but it was all he had a great heart for people so he would write about not just sports stars but sports fans in the same way and uh, everybody had dignity and and people responded to that and then he, he if he was mad or he thought something was wrong or he had a story like when when we were all very preoccupied not preoccupied occupied with doping he was ferocious did you so you preside over two essentially free agent periods for Riley, which are almost as big as like you know NBA free agency because he's the most popular sports writer in America. I think fair to say during that period. What um, absolutely? What did you try to do? How did you go about trying to keep Rick Riley? I would. I would. I wanted. I tried to be friends with him. I, I wanted to be friends with him. Not that that was my only motive to be friends with him. But the 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 better I knew him, I thought the more he would trust what I was 
telling him about why he should stay. And he's a very savvy business guy, and he understood everything. But I, I tried to accommodate him and make it easy for him to write what he wanted and to really soar in the back page where he was, you know, he was soaring there when I arrived, of course. Yeah, for sure. And I love this scene in the book where you're negotiating what turns out to be a million dollar a year contract to keep him when you successfully keep him the first time. And he comes into your office and symbolically kind of puts his feet up on your desk. Like, you know, <laughs> hey, boss, you know, you're uh, this is how this negotiation is going to go. Well, that was fine, though. I had I, I as I write in the book, I had I had I had taken the the, cup, the author photograph off the back of his most recent book and framed it and hung it behind my desk. So I, I figured that he would, you know, I would point that out at the end of our talk or whatever. But when he sat right across from me and put his feet up, he looked on the wall and there was that picture. And I, you know, that got his attention, made him smile a little bit, I think, <laughs> that we got off to a pretty good start that way. He eventually leaves. But then I did this horrible thing when he was leaving. It was a thing that I really regret to this day. I did not write about everything that he had done for SI in my editor's note. I wrote I tried to spin it forward and write about what we were going to do next. And that was a that was a terrible oversight. And he writes you this angry email that ends with a sign off screw you sideways. Well, he was right. I, that was a mistake, and like I say, I regret it. I ran into him on the street years later, and we were better. And it was great to see him, and he called me boss again, which he always did as a joke, but not in that letter that you just referenced. What's the tangible effect, or what was the tangible effect of losing a guy like that? I tried to measure that many, many times, and I never came up with a satisfactory equation it we did not immediately have a fall off in circulation we got letters from readers where's riley but like i say we didn't have any you know hard data it did cost us money in advertising immediately but that that was sort of going in that direction anyway the reason for that was that advertisers love to buy the page opposite the inside back cover to be opposite him because he was so well read. So other interesting thing happens too when you're there. It starts before Riley leaves, I think, which is that Peter King, who is contributing to the magazine but also writing this Monday column, Monday morning quarterback online, kind of becomes starts to become SI's most popular writer. How did that happen? Ironies abound in, in that story. Uh, he he started writing that column for a good friend of his who went down to be the editor, went to Atlanta to be the editor of SI.com. It was going to be part of Turner then. Nobody in New York was very interested in the website. He did it as a favor, and it just started to catch on. And then as it was catching on, the then president of SI, the publisher, Bruce Howard, and I went to Atlanta and made a deal to bring the website back to New York under the umbrella of Sports Illustrated, and we did that. And so moving it back and seeing what was happening with Peter, we encouraged him and held him up as as the ideal among other writers, and he immediately picked up on everything. He was one of the first people to recognize the power of social media. 
he wrote more and more. He developed a, a tone, a, a point of view that was very attractive, especially to people who cared about the National Football League. And it just got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah, and a bunch of your writers didn't want to write for the internet, right? They saw the internet. That as... was a yeah. That was a, the the ongoing revolution <laughs> that uh, I think uh, finally was resolved uh, by the time I'd left or right when I was leaving. And they saw it as like the AAA team, basically. That that was that was. No, they wanted to be paid extra. They demeaned it. It was it was a very passive aggressive sort of line between the people working online and the people working in print. And it was a, a priority of mine to push those things together. And we worked on that all the time. And this is just sort of and like... a lot of other writers picked that up too. Tom Berducci became extremely proficient, popular and whatever on the website, for example. Yeah, for sure. And it's just like an era of journalism changing, right? This old, the 90s, which is sort of a glory time for magazine writers, right? Making a lot of money, being paid by the word in a mm -hmm. lot of cases, and being told, well, there's going to be this new reality where, where you, you know, you get to do your sort of fancy long lead time magazine story. And also, you have to kind of write a lot of stuff in the middle. And it may be that that those kind of stuff you kind of toss off in the middle becomes even more popular than the feature you were slaving away over for a month. And when they did that, though, they would see what had happened and then they would take to it, or most would. So, and that was a gradual progression, of course. For sure. You got to credit ESPN. They went out there, they built a, a wonderful website really before anybody else in sports was thinking about that. And did you feel. And when they did that Starway project. Right. And was that your competition, ESPN.com, by that point? We were trying to catch them. They they were their their website was way ahead. Yeah, they put a lot of resources into it. That that was a problem that we had at SI because of the economics of the entire company. You know, you were trying to manage those those P and Ls. It was trying to catch falling knives, as they say on Wall Street, because <laughs> the, the advertising was just leaving, and so it was difficult to get development. Research money and, and ESPN had, I mean, you know, de development money and ESPN had already crossed that river. They had a strong website. The uh, one thing that's funny to me about SI is it was always slow, even back into the 60s, you know, glory period, right? By the time someone read Dan Jenkins's account of a golf major, they'd already watched a major on TV and seen it shoot over in their local newspaper. But around the turn of the century, I remember as an SI subscriber and reader, all of a sudden it started to seem really slow, as if by the time the game happened on Saturday or Sunday and I read, I saw the cover for the first time on Thursday or Friday, there'd been like a hundred news cycles between those two events. When did it begin to feel slow to you? Well, when I walked in, I, I had in my head exactly what you just described. I had there were two things about that though. One was that the tradition at SI was that you would do such a good story. Dan Jenkins, for example, do such a wonderful story about whatever that event was that was passed that it stayed with you. And this was especially true of the long bonuses. 
people would read a bonus and they would think, my God, that's so great. I'm going to stay with SI just on the chance that something that wonderful will happen to me again. So there was all this residual goodwill that way. And there was a lot of opinion about how well, you shouldn't care about the timing or it's not really about news. It's, it's about that, which is what SI traditionally had delivered. I understood that, but I was very worried about, as I said, what you just defined as the quickening news cycle. So we tried to play it forward as much as we could. That was my, always my intention. What was your strategy? Think, think beyond what you're thinking about. Just try to get ahead. Where, where are we going to be next week? Just to think that way. Do more. Do more previews and not cover, but to develop big bonus pieces that would cover in another way with more nuance and more layers and more filters so that you would get the sense that you were getting everything you wanted. Was there a point in this 10-year period where you're editing the magazine where you say, okay, there was a great Michigan-Notre Dame game on Saturday. Uh, It was the biggest story in sports, but we can't put it on the cover anymore because it's just going to seem like it's too late when people see it on Thursday. It sounds to me like you were sitting in those cover meetings. (laughs) We talked about that all the time. And was there a point in something that something that would something enormous that would happen, something monumental would would test that. But still, I I don't think I did that very much. The uh, one of the uh, things you are given, one of the uh, things you find in the closet when you become the editor of SI is the swimsuit issue, which accounted for a giant part of SI's annual revenue back in those days. Um, you write in your book that a bunch of the, uh, that a decent sized portion of your staff didn't like it and found it humiliating and sort of degrading. How did you make your peace with the swimsuit issue? I want, I remember, I remember being on morning Joe and being asked a very smart question by someone about how can you, how can you cover great women athletes? and treat them equally, and then turn around and do this demeaning swimsuit issue. And I said something about, you know, having to keep two ideas in your head at the same time, which was unsatisfactory, I thought, but it got me out of that question. (laughs) I think the, the most important thing about that was that the attitude of the people who were doing swimsuit was not exploitive. And the women were healthy, and I had a whole speech about that, and I, and I believed that speech. I didn't think it was as raunchy as, as it might have been, which it, which it was not, but it was going in that direction. And at one point, Peter King came to me uh, and said, this has gone far enough. There are, more, there are more women in that issue with their tops off than with their tops on. You know, they're holding it, it's their back, it's, you know, those kinds of pictures. It's, it's pornography. We can't, we can't do this anymore. It's ruining Sports Illustrated. And so I, I said, I, un- I understand the concern about that. And then I, I launched a, a survey within the magazine to, to all the people, all the staff. You know, what do you think of swimsuit? And a third of them came back and said, it's part of the business We'll live with it, and sometimes it's okay, pretty good. A third said, it's disgusting, it embarrasses me, it's ruining the the brand. And the final third were 
the most, you know, I don't know, the word's not hilarious. They were very wry about it. They could not believe that I had done this survey. <laughs> that was their response to it. <laughs> and you, as the editor, had to make the final call of which picture you put on the front? I did, but that changed over the years, too. I, when I got there, small room, six or eight pictures, a little bit of research, okay, let's do that. Over those years, that research became more and more important, and more and more people came into the room. Consumer marketing, as it was called, it, it was just such a big business for us. It wasn't like giant like you suggested, but it was like 10% of a business that was a very big business. And by the time I left, I looked around that room, and I realized there were, I still made the decision, but there were 20 people in that room, all with an opinion and a point of view and a stake in it, and I had to somehow bring coherence to all of those uh, points of view. They're all stakeholders, you know. For sure. And I loved, I loved a couple of nuggets, one that readers did not like. Swimsuit models with sand on their butts. That was just a total turnoff to everybody. And the other one was the um, one year you had a model on the cover holding her bikini top in her hand. And the next year you, you had a model just wearing a swimsuit in the proper fashion. And the latter sold like half a million copies fewer than the former. If you can go into those those numbers, into that data, and just have a ball with it about, <laughs> you know, you can prove almost anything. There was some, the people, Wall Street did a thing once where they determined that uh, the market did better over the course of the swimsuit year if the model on the cover was American. <laughs> this is like the SI swimsuit index, you know, downtown. <laughs> And they, they, you know, they could, they could prove it. Is why I mentioned it. <laughs> Did you, if you had to do it in 2016, just given the way the world has moved, where we are now versus when you were there, would you do it any differently now, today? Swimsuit? Yeah. Well, they're doing it differently. I, I've, I believe they're having. It's going to be an event. Also, there's going to be a swimsuit festival. I believe mm. as a way to make more money whatever did you um did you admire what espn did with its bodies issue putting players yeah, men and was, yeah. women yeah 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 that was good the, the pictures were great but I, there was no way that i could stop swimsuit and do that <laughs> we did put we put you know we put men in the swimsuit issue we did athletes and their wives we you know we they were in there but it was nowhere near what those wonderful uh, naked men were doing over at ASPN. I read uh, some excerpts from a speech you gave in 2012, the magazine Editor's Hall of Fame. And you said, I think being an editor right now is the most interesting time to be an editor because of all the possibilities that are coming. And you also said, change or go home, no fear, and bring it. Do you feel the same way in 2016 as you did in 2012, given the way the media has gone? I think that would depend on where I was a magazine editor and whether or not I had control over the website and all the digital, you know, parts of the brand as well. Those are split up now. I don't think you'd want to edit a magazine without editing the website at the same time. And a lot of magazine editors are in that situation. So I would, I would not like that would not be interesting to me just to be doing print. What can a magazine do now? Do you think? I mean, a print issue of a magazine. Let's let's assume it's yoked to a some kind of digital operation. What can it still do? 
I, I think that if you look at the success that the upscale magazines are still having, they're, they're, they're beautiful objects. Fashion, that's working. But if you go to the magazines that I always read, I, I look at the New Yorker and I see that their website is, you know, very energetic and they're breaking news and there's a lot on there and I go there every day and that's building and coming and coming and coming and I think that's very good and they did very well with that. I love the thing that, that Graydon Carter just launched at uh, Vanity Fair called The Hive. It, uh, it it has the tone and the feel of what he did back when he launched Spy. <laughs> it's a great news site for me. It covers what I'm interested in. And it's, I get it twice a day, newsletter. The saddest part for me, and I've worked, I think, almost all my career in the in the digital world, but the uh, is the death of the headline, yeah, because it just doesn't translate over to the way it did on a magazine page. What what could a great headline do for a magazine piece? I used to say that if you could write headlines on deadline, it was like walking around your newsroom like one of those Looney Tune characters who would suddenly from behind their back be holding a stick of dynamite that was with a lit fuse or a <laughs> anvil or one of those funny cartoon guns. It just exploded uh, the interestingness of the, of the story and, you know, drew people in. And if they had humor, which all the good ones really do, uh, it was a wonderful game both to play at writing and to play at reading. What is, is there something you didn't get done at SI that you wanted to or a problem you weren't able to solve? Sure. I mean, there's a long list there. We wanted to get the video faster. We wanted to be better on uh, mobile faster. We had we launched all kinds of things uh, from 2007 like, or eight up through 2012. I gave this... Uh, uh, keynote at a Google Iowa in San Francisco, and we had what I thought was a really hot HTML5, you know, digital magazine, and it went over really well. And but we we never had the resources to build it out fast enough to get into the market to see if it could catch. But but it's, you know it's it's mobile. The um, too yeah, I mean, that's the future I see. I imagine you would agree with that oh for sure there's a lot of yeah. uh, psychological perks to being a magazine editor in the golden age of magazines you hanging out with jim harrison and tom mcguane i would assume would be in your top 10 somewhere but put those aside for just a second what was the best material perk of being a magazine editor you could get anybody pretty much that you wanted on the phone so if you wanted to talk to somebody you wanted to find something out you could call them. And if you were at a magazine like Sports Illustrated or Esquire or Rolling Stone, those magazines, that, that was a wonderful luxury for me. Mm. Who were your top gets? Oh, I, you know, I don't know. You, you know, I, you could, could, you could get, you know, I could, I could call and talk to Roger Goodell, you know, <laughs> okay. I, who I liked a lot, but yeah. I, but that just because that was, you know, in our interest in our business and stuff. But, uh, I'm trying to, you know, I would, I would call, uh, if, if a movie struck me or I read a book and by someone who had never written about 
what the, my magazine was about, and I, I would just call them up and say, "Hey, why don't you why don't you write for us?" And they would almost always respond, and that was that was fun. Yeah, I thought you were going to say Jack Nicholson or something like that, Roger Goodell. Well, that I, that, that happened. I'm sorry, I should have said that. <laughs> it did. Yeah, I, yeah, you could do that. Just put just put in a call and get right through, huh? Well, you did. You had to get the right phone number, but. Uh, Nobody ever got mad when you, when they picked up the phone and there you were. <laughs> and, you know, the offices that you would go through would snap to. They were more attuned to the power of of magazines sure. than I would think they are now. Terry McDonald's Because now you wouldn't do it that way. Now you'd, now you'd do it with email or LinkedIn or, you'd, you know, you'd get that private account and you'd go that way. Right. Which is the way I was doing it. That's the way I was doing it just way back in, you know, 2000. Seven, eight, I guess. Yeah, but, but you'd be on the same plane as BuzzFeed, right? It's not Esquire calling. Wouldn't have quite the same uh, same ring to it in 2016. <laughs> that's right, but that's constantly changing. <laughs> Derry McDonald, the book is The Accidental Life, an editor's notes on writing and writers. Thanks very much for being here and joining us. Uh, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.